Well, good morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is December 7th, 2015, and this is broadcast number 92. And as usual, our monthly uh, feature of the podcast, we um, uh, have the privilege of sitting down with the seminary president, Dr. Joseph Piper, who um, will be answering questions uh, sent in by the listeners uh, throughout the last four or five weeks. And uh, a number of them are very good, and, and we'll get to those in um, just a minute. I do want to bring everybody up to speed uh, just briefly on um, things that we're doing here around the seminary. As most of you know, we are uh, rapidly ending uh, the fall semester of 2015 and um, preparing uh, diligently now to uh, turn the corner and begin to focus our attention as a seminary uh, on the theology conference that will begin um, be held here in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, during the month of March. I don't have the details in front of me, but if you want to find out more information about the conference uh, that we hold each year, uh, you can go to the website gpts.edu. In addition to the Information about the podcast, as usual, you can go to our website, confessingourhope.com. There you'll find all past episodes, information, uh, show notes, and, and other resources that uh, hopefully will help you, help you in your walk with the Lord and in your understanding of these theological matters that we're going to deal with, especially today as we talk with... Um, uh, with uh, the seminary president, Dr. Joseph Pipa. So, Dr. Pipa, as usual, it's great to have you on the program to talk with us and to discuss these questions. That some of them came in uh, pretty pretty late in the game, but uh, anyway, they're on cue, and we'll Lord willing get to those. Thank you, in, Bill. In due course, uh, why don't you pray for us, and then we'll um, and then we'll begin. All right, our Father, you who are great and glorious, to whom belongs honor, glory, and dominion. We bless your name and praise you as the creator, ruler, and governor, preserver of the entire creation and the redeemer of your people. We thank you for Christ, your Son, our Savior, and for the Spirit who regenerated us and indwells us and illumines our understanding. We pray for his ministry now to apply to us, Lord, uh, the truths of Scripture as we would wrestle with some very important questions today. Grant that the answers will be consistent with Scripture and profitable to our hearers. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> now, just so all the listeners understand just how this works, um, uh, listeners send in questions. Dr. Pipa reviews them. He, um, in some cases, even researches uh, some some of them. And then... Um, uh, answers these on air. Uh, this is a live program for those who are listening live. We thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen uh, to this podcast, but it is also recorded and can be listened to at any other time uh, that you choose. Uh, the way to do it is to simply go to our website, submit the question. Uh, it's very simple. There's a, a form there, and you can send those questions in. There's other ways, but the website will tell you those ways as well. So, Dr. Piper, why don't we go ahead and start? We, um, I guess we're just going to take these in order. Yes, and then some of them I've not really reviewed. I've read them quickly, but if we get to them, by God's grace, we'll try to deal with them. Outstanding. Okay, so the first question comes in from Chad from Charlotte, North Carolina. He writes in, Dr. Piper, what advice do you have for elders on managing change in the church? For example, a start of a prayer meeting. What are some good resources for elder and deacon training other than GPTS's excellent ruling elder deacon program? And you might want to, Dr. Piper, comment a little bit further on that. How many families can a typical elder shepherd well? Okay, Chad, it's good to hear from you. 
And a very important question for any of us who are concerned today about uh, reformation and sanctification in our uh, churches. Uh, change is a very difficult thing in any part of society, but probably particularly in the church. So I'm going to assume that when you say the ruling elders that the pastor and elders are on the same page. Uh, if they're not, then we would start another place. But since your question says, what can the ruling elders do? Uh, and, of course, the first place and most important place is to make it a matter of concerted prayer, to agree with uh, amongst themselves as a session that we want to see these changes instituted because we believe the church needs to go in more biblical or useful uh, directions. A good discussion or discussions at the session meeting, then in terms of a change and priorities, what the church looks like. I periodically, when I was in the pastorate, would take the officers through Acts, for example, look at what the ideal church ought to be, Acts and epistles, and then where are we as a congregation and what are some goals and things that we want to press forward. We must never be content now, I always think of Philippians as the typical church, and they had problems to address and changes to make. And so will all of our congregations. The moment we become content, we become stagnant, and uh, we decline. So I'm glad you're interested in change, and uh, we want to continue to evaluate our churches and press on in that area. I'll deal generally first, then we'll talk about the prayer meeting uh, so the elders, if the elders are on the same page, then a strategy is to be worked out. There was actually a church in California that did this. They were uh, charismatic. They became Reformed Baptist, and now they are a congregation in the OPC. Did not lose a member through all that earlier uh, process. But they, uh, you know, the elders agreed, and then through a strategy of teaching, discipleship, and preaching— so the, um, the pastor should be uh, should preach a series of sermons on the matter uh, that's before the elders. The elders, and I'll come back to the pastoral visit in a moment, should be helping people in the home then. What do you think about this? Do you have questions? And then uh, begin to institute uh, the, the changes in the life of the church, all the while praying, interacting. Now, there's some changes that the elders, for the sake of peace, might hold back on then. In my first church, we I wanted to move to a, the Trinity Hymnal. Uh, this was a little country congregation in Mississippi, and um, so we took our time, and, and the elders eventually voted unanimously to do that, and a majority of the congregation were in favor of it, but there was number of older people who weren't, and it would have hurt them at that point. As long as we could get decent, good hymns out of the other hymnal, uh, we decided at that point that that was not uh, the way to go. Same way with some of the postures in worship, like corporate lifting of hands. May that provoke another question. But uh, Session had the votes. The majority of the congregation wanted to do it, but it was a minority that weren't ready for that. And so, unless it's a biblical issue that's required, then we back off and remain patient. 
Now move to the prayer meeting. I think the prayer meeting is, is a biblical issue and is required. And it's fallen on very hard times in uh, uh, the United States, in our church, Presbyterian churches. It's never had much traction in the uh, churches from the Dutch background. And so I would just take the same procedure is uh, elders be praying, develop a strategy, preach through it, uh, visit in the families, and then institute it. It shouldn't be a teaching time. If you want to have a very brief devotional to set the tone for prayer, that's one thing. But one more Bible study is not what most of our churches need. They really need to learn to pray. And so um, pray. If there's only five people there, three people there, you don't stop. You pray for more to come. It's very important that the elders in something like the prayer meeting are behind it and less providentially hindered or with something maybe occasionally with work or even another type of activity. But their general pattern is that they or their their wives or alternator, somebody's there. Same with deacons. And it ought to be talked about regularly from the pulpit. And so uh, we need our prayer meetings. I don't say we can really expect the... Uh, spirit to work in in the midst of us if we're not meeting for prayer, and particularly then to structure the prayer meeting. And I would uh, one of the resources here as I jump to resources is Willie Still's um, book on pastoral care and how they conducted the prayer meeting there in uh, Gilkinston in uh, Scotland. Uh, we want to avoid what is humorously called the organ recital. We do pray for the sick, but we need to be devoting ourselves to praying for the church for the lost and for those kingdom-type prayers as they're set out in the Lord's Prayer. As to uh, resources, we've got some really good resources today. Uh, I'll mention a few books. Samuel Miller has uh, his book, uh, The Ruling Elder. That is a Banner of Truth uh, publication. Now, I will not know if these are in... No, it's not. That is an old um, Kevin Reed publication. You can get that Presbyterian one. Presbyterian Heritage. You can get, actually get that one online, Internet Archives, okay. uh, in PDF. All right, good. And then he has a briefer pamphlet as well on the ruling elder by the same group, Presbyterian Heritage. Again, I don't know if this is in print. Lawrence Ayers, one of the patriarchs of the OPC, has a good little book, uh, The Elders of the Church. And then George Scipione, uh, an adjunct professor here, has uh, Timothy Titus and You, a workbook for church leaders. Uh, that is a very useful uh, book. And then uh, Berghoff and DeCoster, two men who used to be in the Christian Reformed Church, have two volumes, one the Deacon's Handbook and one the Elder's Handbook. That's Berghoff and DeCoster. Then uh, I have, if anybody would like an electronic copy of it, uh, a syllabus that we used uh, in Houston for years in training elders and deacons. And uh, Woodruff Road has a very good program, and I think if you contacted Pastor Carl Robbins at Woodruff Road PCA, he might be able to share things with you as well. And then Chad mentioned our own program. The seminary has a Master of Ministry for Ruling Elders and a Master of Ministry for Deacons program. These are programs that come out of our curriculum uh, designed then to help assist churches either in strengthening ruling elders and deacons or helping men prepare. So you don't even have to be a church officer. 
-hmm. As long as the elders approve, you're taking one of those two courses. It's a regular master's level program. can all be done by distance. And we have men in both programs, and we're very excited about them. We like to see them really catch on. As terms of uh, ruling elder visitation, uh, obviously we have to start with what we have. And so, but the ideal is going to be, I would say, um, 10 to 15, uh, enough that a ruling elder can be in everybody's home once a year uh, over a 12-month period. And I like to see them alternate with the pastor then going so people get a visit about every six months that way. If the church is larger and there's an associate pastor, then they can divide the congregation in half. So, um, yeah, 10 to 12, 10 to 15, uh, I think, is uh, uh, ideal. I'm opposed to uh, rotating programs or you have elders that you've got three men approved by the session for elders, and they say, you can elect one. Well, if Christ gave me three, why do I want one? Mm -hmm. If they're all qualified and pass the examination period, then we've always gone to the congregation. If we have three men. We all think they should be elders. It's still up to the congregation to vote for one, two, or three, or none. But I like to take what Christ gives me in that, uh, in that way. So thank you, Chad. Very useful questions for reforming the church. Yeah, excellent question, Chad. Thank you for listening and for writing in. I just want to um, follow up with Dr. Piper on that um, program that you mentioned. Uh, this is radio, not TV. You couldn't see me. Um, I was pointing to myself. You know what? He said that if, if you write in, he'll send you his um, ruling elder training program. Um, is that electronically um, in? I'm pretty sure it is. If you get that to me, I could put that in a place for our listeners. Is that put it on my uh, on, your, on, on your website. Well, that's a good segue into uh, reminding the listeners that Dr. Pipa does have his own website, wh which is chock full of resources. And um, it's simply josephpipa.com. Very easy. And uh, recommend you go and take a look at it. So for those who are interested in, in his ruling, ruling elder training program, if you um, uh, go to that website in the next maybe... Uh, a few days uh, and it should be available up there and uh, in in PDF format so it'd be very easy uh, to get a hold of and utilize um, in that way but again thank you for the question very useful one for the church we'll move on to uh, which I'm taking as an anonymous question um, from a listener uh, the the question is simply what should you say to a person who is deeply satisfied dissatisfied I'm sorry dissatisfied thank you uh, with how they were made and say that that, quote, fearfully and wonderfully made, unquote, cannot apply to them. For example, someone with physically, physical disabilities. You know, this um, is a very important question, a very sensitive question. I want to be sensitive in answering. It's, it's difficult. You know, it's much better to be sitting across the table looking into the eyes of someone who's really uh, wrestling with this. So don't take my answers in any way to be um, cold, impersonal, or abstract. I am a pastor, and I would want to answer this uh, pastorally. We have to begin with some basic presuppositions, and the first thing is that God made all things good. So that means that uh, Adam and Eve in their original state were perfect. If Adam had not sinned, he would have remained perfect in every way, and all of his descendants would have been perfect. But God had threatened, the day that you sin, you shall die. And that death is uh, physical, spiritual, and judicial. 
And so we, we know about spiritual, that we've lost knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Judicial, under God's wrath and condemnation if one does not repent in hell forever. But it's also the physical. And we have to uh, be mindful that death is more than simply the cessation of brain and heart. Death is a deterioration of the whole uh, physical system. So that whatever is, in fact, um, off-kilter, a physical disability or whatever in someone who is born, we recognize that that is itself a consequence of sin. I'm not saying it's a punishment for sin, but it is a consequence of sin, and it is in the next place then to be a reminder to us of how heinous sin is, because most of us do not think enough about that. Now, the next presupposition that we have to say is that uh, God is sovereign and that, as our catechism says, that God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. So as long as we're not talking about sin, I'll come back and talk about sexual orientation in just a moment. We're talking about physical disabilities. We're recognizing that God, in a sovereign and wise and powerful way, eternally decreed and now in time uh, executed um, the formation of this person in the womb in this manner. Now, on the one hand, we say that's God's prerogative, but we don't forget that he's good and he's loving. He makes no mistakes. Now, if I'm talking to a Christian, I then can go the next step and say, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And you go to a book like Job, and there you see exactly how that works out. This man, in a sense, was the innocent suffering. Um, he was a sinner, but uh, he was an upright and godly man. And yet God... Uh, worked in his life in this way and eventually, you know, restored Job, but also, you know, millions, billions of people are being blessed because of God's actions on Job's part. So we have very limited sight. You know, we stand on the ocean shore and we can see the horizon uh, and we can't see the end from the beginning, but God knows the end from the beginning. So many times in Christian families, we look from the outside and we think how tragic that is, and yet how glorious that family is, how it has been further bound together, what glory God brings to himself as they tend to these various uh, disabled children, and then the whole range of disabilities and how some of these um, disabled people are just phenomenal. I just I heard on the news that I, I didn't hear it, don't watch TV on Sunday, but that this girl with cerebral palsy and some other physical conditions has a beautiful voice and sang the Star Spangled Banner uh, at a football game, and everybody's raving about her. Uh, we think of, it wasn't from birth, but uh, Johnny Tata Erickson, and I would encourage people to look at her biography and books 
in terms of here's someone who lost everything physically, quadriplegic, uh, and yet that is deepened her faith in the Lord God. And so we have to have a big view of God and really a very low view of man, for none of us deserve anything better. The fact that the great majority of us are born in God's good pleasure with health and a degree of, at least in the West, of um, mm. comfort. Now, in the area that we're hearing so much about today, uh, sexual orientation is not a physical disability. It is a learned sinful response, and we have to understand that. Uh, and I, I say this dogmatically because uh, God does not create sin. If God made somebody in the womb with a male body and a female disposition, uh, that means that God made a mistake that God created someone uh, to sin. And so people that have these orientations are not to be given into, but to be brought to accept God's purpose in their life. And so often we get the whole matter of um, uh, uh, nurture and nature. This is a matter of nurture. Now, we all know that some people tend from the male side to be more effeminate and from the female side to be more masculine. Those traits need to be undermined and uh, the positive traits developed, and that's the responsibility then of, of Christian parents. Again, I'm not, I don't want to speak lightly of this, but uh, gender um, confusion and sexual orientation, uh, Paul tells us by inspiration that homosexuality, uh, the whole LGBT thing, is a matter of perversion, which means it's a matter of perverted learned behavior. And uh, we've got to sympathetically and compassionately, but biblically, address those issues. So thank you very much for the question. Yes, thank you for writing in, and, and again, thank you for um, listening to the podcast. Uh, we have the uh, next uh, listener, again, uh, assuming it's anonymous, um, uh, writes in and, and asks, is Satan behind every temptation or our every temptation? All right, no, and yes, <laughs> yes and no, in that, that Satan uh, is uh, stirring the pot, Satan and, in the first place, but we take Satan generically, Satan and the demons. Satan himself is not omnipresent. He's got a large army. I think that's very aptly caught on to by C.S. Lewis and Screwtape Letters, which I encourage people to read. But the Bible tells us that there's three sources of temptation, sin, uh, the flesh, and Satan. I mean, excuse me, the world, the flesh, and Satan. The flesh is the remnant of sin that's in the Christian. Now, in the non-Christian, his whole bent and nature is sinful, and so he doesn't need a lot of temptation. Uh, the world is the world system, people, values uh, that are godless and seek to uh, entice us or catch our imagination we have another question later. We'll address this, you know, in terms of what kind of movies a person watches and stuff like that. And then Satan. Now, Satan can orchestrate the matter of all three or of the other two. So he can orchestrate or the demons could orchestrate that certain events occur or people in our lives and that he's a master psychologist that those things um, – hit us at our weak points, and then if he wants to flame the 
fiery can as well. So temptation is a much more uh, complex thing. There's a good Puritan paperback on temptation. Uh, I don't remember the author right now, but uh, Owen in Volume 6 has got a very good little treatise on temptation as well. I've got a sermon on Satan that's on sermon audio. Uh, also uh, gets a bit into his power as a tempter. Yes, thank you for again. Thank you for writing in and um, asking a question. I'm sure many of us have thought of it at least from time to time. Um, you need to think about it much more. Paul yes. says, "I to the Corinthians, Second Corinthians. I assume that you're aware of the strategies of the evil one." Yep. Very good. Well, Arthur writes in. This is coming from Facebook. Um, a Facebook comment uh, on one of the posts that we uh, make repetitively, I admit, uh, some maybe too much so uh, throughout the month, but, um, well, anyway, that's a that's another I story. I almost missed this one, Arthur, so... Uh, this is another story for another day, but, but Arthur writes it, and he asks, what can we learn about preaching from reading the sermons of John Calvin? Isn't his style a bit out of touch with our modern ears? Okay. Um... In the first place, we read the sermons of Calvin not to learn about preaching but to be edified, and uh, that's the uh, important thing. The sermons are very edifying. Uh, but there are things that we can learn about Calvin uh, from Calvin. One thing is, is a good 50% of his sermon material is application mm-hmm. and how he moves so much from uh, uh, the text to, uh, to application. Uh, his... Uh, Style is so in the books on style. It'd be, it'd be called a bit. His, some of his illustrations are just are his figures right out of the uh, of the age in, in which he in which he lives. I've been reading him on Psalm one nineteen as I am preaching through Psalm one nineteen, and uh, some of his uh, figures are just really, uh, particularly in his day. But not that we necessarily use the figure today. But he teaches us how to take figures out of everyday life, everyday. Um, circumstances and, and vocabulary. And then his movement from uh, uh, doctrine to uses, uses is, is the um, uh, word for application. And really, Calvin's sermons are one of the paradigms behind the development of the Puritan method, which is uh, you go from exposition to doctrine to application or uses. And so, yes, uh, the other thing that Calvin does is kind of the running homily. I think that um, I think it takes a masterful preacher to do it. I hear some that I don't think I could do it. I mean, I do it occasionally at a, when I have to go to a campus someplace and have 14 minutes to preach. But he's a master of going through a text in a very uh, smooth uh, way and connecting the thought. That's better in didactic and narrative material. What I find, uh, say in Psalm 119, most writers deal with each verse separately. I think there's a theme to each stanza, mm-hmm. and I wrestle to develop that theme. And so he's not as helpful uh, there, and this answer probably not as helpful either. But there are, we profit spiritually, exegetically, uh, and then style, uh, and then application. Learn how to make application. Now, I would fault him. At the point, I think he could be more Christological than he was, and I prefer to use second person uh, plural you rather than uh, the first person plural we, which Calvin almost universally used. But still, he's a good teacher. 
Yes, Arthur, thank you again for writing in and for, um, and for being a longtime listener um, of the program as well. Our next question comes from, um, from Drew in Greenville, South Carolina. There's actually three questions. Um, I will, um, well. Do one at a time. You want to do one at a time. Okay, we're going to take these one at a time. And the first one is, in what sense was Adam immortal before the fall? Would he have survived something such as having a major artery severed, or was he immortal in the sense that, that had he not sinned, God would have providentially preserved him until he passed the test of his probation? Does the Bible commit us to one view or the other, or is this something about which Christians can reasonably disagree? Okay, Drew, thank you. And Drew, as is, is one of our students, you know, it's, it's fun on Facebook to have questions uh, either from students or from friends like Arthur Fox or far away friends like um, my dear friend in uh, Brazil, Virginia uh, Canuto. Uh, but it's also fun to go out and meet people who have been listening to the uh, Faith and Practice podcast or to get an email from them. And I want to mention, too, there's a, a man up in, uh, in Long Island who's in the new OPC church in Queens mm. that's been started by a couple of our alumni, uh, wrote very good question last month about apologetics, and I ended up having two weeks later lunch with him in his home. Uh, but I also want to take the opportunity to tell you all about another listener who's been helped by faith and practice and who has written his first Christian novel. His name's Eric Lupold, L-U-P-P-O-L-D, and the book is Into the Tempest. Uh, I want to write a review of the book, but it is, it's, it's a great book. What Eric is dealing with is how the government can begin to persecute the Christians in a very kind of low-key way and just kind of almost shut down the church. And he bases it on the strategy that the communists used in the Soviet Union. Each chapter begins then with a quotation out of various Soviet uh, regulations and stuff. So um, it closes with the opportunity for a sequel, and I hope Eric will write a sequel, but for for his first novel, uh, I commend him, and I encourage you all to get Into the Tempest by Eric Leupold, and I thank Eric for listening and for sending me a complimentary copy of that book. Now, uh, Adam was immortal in that he had an immortal soul, and the larger catechism, uh, as it addresses the creation of man, uh, touches on this issue. Number 17, how did God create man? After God made all the creatures, he created man, male and female, formed the body of the man of the dust of the ground and the woman of the rib of the man, endued them with living, reasonable, and immortal souls, and made them after his own image, etc. Ecclesiastes uh, 12.7 reminds us then that even in the fallen state that the soul is immortal, body returns to dust, the spirit to uh, the God who gave it. So it's the immortality of the soul that made the body uh, immortal. As long as they were in union then, um, in a perfected state, uh, the body would remain immortal. When the soul died spiritually, God appointed then that the body would die um, as well, by the soul being separated. This is the thing we have to remember. Death is the separation, physical death, separation of soul and body. We measure that by brain waves, but it's the soul that activates the brain. When the soul is taken away, the brain stops. 
And so it is the immortal soul that makes the body immortal. The immortal soul, then, will at death either be with God in heaven or in hell. At the resurrection, the bodies both of the righteous and the reprobate will be joined back with their souls, which means they then will be uh, human beings, body and soul, either in heaven or in hell. So the soul is the key to immortality. It would have been impossible before the fall for Adam to have uh, suffered any type of accident because accidents would come from um, uh, weakness in his uh, human nature. Uh, so God, yes, providentially preserved him. Uh, the Bible does commit us to the view that the soul is immortal, and as long as the soul is joined to the body, then the person is um, going to be rejoined to the body uh, permanently. So it's only as the soul is separated from the body, the body becomes mortal. When the soul is rejoined to the body, the body will remain immortal. Oh, I probably should unmute. Uh, just to follow up, uh, Dr. Pipe, uh, in, in relationship to the question that was asked, um, it, it, the question to me about the severing of the artery, would, if, if Adam in his pre-fall state, could he have even been in a situation where he would be able to sever his artery? So I said no. Okay. That it would be possible, it would entail an accident or something that would not have happened to a perfect man. Okay. Yeah. All right. Second question. Uh, same uh, writer, listener, and uh, student, as it turns out. Uh, what is the correct distinction between general and special revelation? Was God's interaction with Adam before the fall general revelation or special? All right. Yeah, I hadn't thought about uh, this in the same light, Drew, and I appreciate that. Let me take you all to the chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I think most of our hearers know that the seminary uh, holds uh, to the entirety of the confession and catechisms as our doctrinal standard. There'd be minor scruples that different people would take with certain exegetical nuances and such, but this is a great summary of what I believe the Bible teaches. So it begins, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, it's believed meant inexcusable. That is general revelation, those two things, the light of nature and the works of creation and providence. The light of nature is then uh, man's conscience. It's the law of God written on his heart. And the works of creation and providence are that which man then observes uh, in uh, both the physical realm and the unfolding of providence in the physical realm. Uh, that's general revelation. It's given to all people. Special revelation, then, is directed to uh, the church, which Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 is the pillar and support of the truth. And so the confession continues, are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers manners to reveal himself and declare that his will unto the church. Afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world. And go back to the question, there's the threefold flesh, Satan, and the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary. Those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So we had special revelation that would have come through uh, prophets 
and men God revealed messages to, um, that which was not preserved was still special revelation. That which is preserved is then inspiration, the very uh, important part of special revelation that gives us our Bibles. So what we have in the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Now, in the fall, Adam, who had the law of God written in his heart, would have had that general revelation. When Adam went and named the animals, he was exercising dominion and reading general revelation as he um, would name each animal consistent with its nature. But also in the garden, Adam would have received special revelation. Um, we know the three creation commandments of Sabbath and um, work and marriage. Uh, Adam also would have been given the details of uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1. Um, and whatever else, God enforced the, the law upon his heart, and of course he had the revelation with respect to the covenant of works. So yes, I think Adam would have had both uh, in the fall. That's the part I really hadn't thought about uh, without the question, but he obviously had the law of God written on his heart. That's the light of nature, and he obviously had to read creation in order to uh, name the animals. And to farm, cultivate the ground. Okay, very good. I, I, well, anyway, moving on. Number three. Anyway, what? Well, it's, I, I know the genesis behind the question. I'm so, sure you do. He um, lives with you. That's correct. Um, anyway, um, should be interesting tonight um, if he's listening live um, to this, but uh, our follow-up discussion that will ensue, um, no doubt. But question, question three, um, what's the definition of lawfully ordained? Westminster Confession of Faith 27.4 is a man who has been ordained in a denomination that has abandoned the gospel but has not been declared apostate lawfully ordained. Woo. Yes. The language in 27.4, there be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. Now, the question opens a whole can of worms. Uh, I think that uh, as a pastor, I don't have the prerogative or even a local session to make a decision about a church's ordination. And so if uh, one of these mainline denominations that has not is still recognized by, um, say, our conservative Presbyterian denominations, uh, then I think we have to say that the, the person is lawfully ordained and we accept their baptism. Now, there's a lot of things that come out of this. In the first place, I have to wrestle with a woman. Is a woman a man lawfully ordained, even though that denomination uh, or has ordained her? And it's not just liberals that have ordained women. The, in the Methodist Wesleyan tradition, they've ordained women for years. And so although I think it is highly um, extraordinary and unusual, I'm not going to quibble over that. Maybe I missed this, but did you define lawfully? I'm trying to. Okay. I'm getting this. Again, this is radio, not TV. I'm getting that look across the table. So, I, it, it, well, anyway, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, 
lawfully is this a proper ordination, and that's only done on the basis of is it a proper Christian church? Uh, so, yeah, maybe I didn't sufficiently. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, is that if it is a recognized uh, Christian denomination, it's lawful ordination. Then you move to is the woman lawfully ordained? It's not an lawfully ordained man, but she is has been set aside in the proper manner by that denomination to be lawfully ordained. In my opinion, the uh, Presbyterian Church in America and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church need to declare that a number of these bodies, like the uh, American Episcopal and the um, PCUSA, are no churches. Mm-hmm. Now, before you jump off your seat on that, understand it doesn't say that everybody in them is not a Christian. Right. But an apostate church is no longer then. We don't accept their sacraments, and we don't accept their ordination. And so I think we need to do that. This also applies to the matter, and this for me is the issue that's often missed with respect to uh, do we accept Roman Catholic baptism? I knew you were going to go there. (laughs) At the seminary, we teach no, we don't. And this is the primary reason. Now, there's many other reasons. How can a, a sacrament be both the sign and the thing at the same time? You know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's impossible. Rome does not have the gospel. Uh, and so how can this be the sign of the gospel? So just because it's Trinitarian language doesn't amount to me to a hill of beans. Um, but the really important thing is we do not accept, we say the Roman Catholic Church is no church. We do not accept their ordination, and we do not accept their membership. So if I don't accept their ordination, then according to the confession of faith, that a person baptized by a priest is not baptized by a lawfully ordained man. Uh, And I think that, uh, again, we need to become uh, much more consistent about this. And there's a whole area, a gray area then, of there's groups out in California, for example, Calvary Chapel, that, and I've dealt with two different men that have done this, who appoint men in the church to baptize. And so I had one student approach me in California. I need to go back and find all the people I baptized and tell them they're not baptized. I think that's not the best use of his time. But what we have to be aware of is elders examine a person is ask them about their baptism and who baptized you. Uh, And it was a man in one of these churches appointed to do it. Well, then I would say you ought to be baptized. If they don't know, uh, then we accept that baptism. So it's uh, it's we we live in very uh, times that are marked by anarchy, and this is is one of the places where it it manifests itself. I, I'm glad you touched on the the issue of uh, this the, the the issue of the denomination uh, as opposed to the individual, and 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 really that's the crux of it. If we if if for instance the PCA were to say. Uh, the PCUSA is apostate, which I don't think they've ever formally said. Oh, no, we haven't. Um, because of that lack of doing that, we run into these problems with um, transferring membership to a PCUSA church from a PCA congregation and, and elders kind of stuck in the, in this gray zone. And, and so it's really a denomination declaring another denomination as apostate, not individuals declaring the denomination right, as apostate, right. which is a critical Difference. And you're going to have two different scenarios. You're going to have a a uh, a Christian minister ordained, if it's in the church, if we declared it apostate, 
And his Christianity is not what makes that baptism valid. Right. As the confession says, it's not the piety or the intention of the one exercising the sacrament. Yep. And so we're really talking about the group itself, the denomination. Okay. Well, Drew, very good. Thank you for writing in these three questions. I just want to point out just for the listener's sake that um, and this, this actually uh, was a question that came to me privately uh, by a listener. And um, it, and it's this. If you, if you write into the podcast uh, for, let's say, Faith and Practice number 20, which will be held next month, Lord willing, and you send in 14 questions, uh, you only get one $10 coupon <laughs> to the Banner of Truth. Okay, so in other words, you can't stack questions in order to, like, build your library. Um, I just want to make that clear. It's not, a, it's not a clarification that I made up initially when we started doing this. It's on the website now, specifically stated, but I just want people to understand that um, if you send in three questions, you'll get one $10 coupon if we use all three of those questions on the same program. If we roll them over, then that would change things. So uh, just understand you can't stack questions in order to build your on personal library as much as we want you to do that. Next question. And the uh, next next Faith and Practice podcast, Lord Ren, will be on uh, Monday, January the 4th. Monday, January the 4th. That's great. Right after I get back from the great state of Florida. <clears throat> anyway, that, that's an inside joke. Um, the next question comes anonymously uh, from a, a listener. Uh, do, and, and, and it, 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 I'm not surprised by this question given the time of the year. Do we need to celebrate Christmas while Christians and non-Christians. non-Christians all over the world are celebrating Christ's birth, even God gave us a means of grace to remember Jesus' suffering. Okay. Um, I, there's no, I think, one complete answer to this question. I think a lot has to do with how a person would celebrate Christmas. Now, the language Christ Mass, you know, that no longer has any significance uh, in modern culture, Corpus Christi, we're not taking God's name in vain if we talk about Corpus Christi, which is literally the body of Christ. Uh, I think there are three approaches to what people call Christmas. Uh, if a person wants to observe uh, at this time of the year, the, uh, celebrate the Advent, uh, I believe that they have the Christian liberty to do so. And I think that uh, there are churches that follow the, uh, what we call the liturgical calendar. Uh, that is not a practice of Presbyterian churches. And actually, it was ruled against in the Synod of Dort, but the state insisted for the time being of keeping the religious calendar. And the members of the Synod of Dort gave into that, thinking it would be temporary. And uh, to this day now, all of the Dutch background churches have a pretty full uh, liturgical calendar with not just um, Advent and uh, Easter, but Ascension and uh, Pentecost and a number of other uh, special days. I think the church is free to do that. I don't think it's free to require other its members to come to any service but on the Lord's Day, but I think it's free to observe the, uh, the calendar. And if it wants to observe um, the Advent of Christ, then I think it, it's really free to do so. I don't, um, I don't do that myself. I think every Lord's Day is a celebration both of the Advent and of the Resurrection. Now, on the other side is those who, because of that, that every Sunday is the celebration of the Advent and Resurrection, don't do anything with respect to Christmas. 
and it's just a, another day in the year for them. Although I've never noticed somebody not willing to take the day off that we give to them uh, for that holiday. But uh, <laughs> um, and they're free to do that. Right. Now the third position, I actually wrote a pamphlet on this for the PCA a number of years ago, um, is the position that I take, and I don't. I think the the problem today is confusing Advent with Christmas traditions, tree wreaths. Uh, exchange of presents, those types of things. Um, I think that's really schizophrenic, and I think you should do one or the other. So what we've opted for in our family, because we're very committed to trying to develop family traditions, some stuff that Edith Schaefer wrote years ago shaped our thinking on that. And so for us, quote, Christmas, which, again, I take that this is more like Corpus Christi now than Christ Mass. Christmas is a cultural holiday like July 4th or a special, some families have special birthday traditions. And so we have a tree most years. If, if grandchildren are going to be there, we have a tree. We decorate the tree. We put no religious symbols on the tree. And please don't put angels on the tree, regardless of what you do. It's a great insult to these uh, lofty and glorious creatures. And so we exchange presents. We decorate the house. We have wreaths out in the windows and stuff like that. But we don't in any way relate that to the birth of Christ. So I think that um, that either uh, uh, any of the three are acceptable. Just don't try to combine uh, one and three. But now as to ministers, we have a lot of ministers listening to this program. I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones that on the Sunday closest to Christmas and then on uh, Easter Resurrection Sunday, I've always made a habit. I, I know men that are preaching through a book, and they just—they'll usually make some remark about let their freak flag fly, and they keep going on their series. Martin Lloyd Jones said, "Why in the world would I not preach the two Sundays a year when people actually come to church thinking about what I'm going to preach on? Why would I not take advantage of that?" Mm-hmm. And so I've always taken advantage of that, often to look at Old Testament prophecies and whatever. But I encourage ministers to take advantage of that. I think it's fine to sing Advent hymns then, but I think we should sing them all year round, and I think we should sing Resurrection hymns all year round as well. Uh, remember that the remembrance of Christ that's the means of grace is the Lord's Supper. Yep. And that's every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are using the means of grace to remind us of the Advent. Well, good question, and thank you again for uh, listening and for uh, writing in. Uh, just for Dr. Piper's uh, sake, because he can't see the things I can see on my screen, we have less than 10 minutes, and um, there, there is a – how do you know? I've got my clock going there. Oh, well, uh, I have the official clock, the live clock. Uh, we can talk forever, but we have less than 10 minutes to do the live part. We'll quit taking up so much time. Okay. <laughs> It's, it's usually it's usual it's my fault and, and anyway that, that actually led up to something the next question is ex- extensive and rather long it'll be our last lengthy. one I would imagine now what I'm suggesting we do is we skip it and go to the next one which ties in with the one we just answered okay can we do that we can we, we can do that okay we can finish the rest of the questions I think maybe we'll see how we'll see okay so anyway William writes in from San Antonio let me just say then there's a very good question on Christians and labor unions and we will begin with that question, Lord willing, on January 4th. Okay. Because it's, it's very important. It is. And we do want to uh, give it the kind of t- 
time because it, this question itself is it would take five minutes to read it. So it's it, yeah, complex. it's very long. It's very good. Complex. It's a good question, and and I'm not trying to. Uh, besmirch the writer by any means. I'm thankful that you listen and write in, and um, but we will do it, um, uh, Lord willing. Uh, but anyway, William writes in from the great state of Texas, and um, I'm sure he'll appreciate that. Well, William uh, uh, has often asked questions. Yes, so. and he's a longtime listener, and in fact, I know he's listening live as well. So, um, so William, welcome again to the program, and thank you for listening um, so faithfully and, and encouraging me uh, privately uh, with uh, th- things that you've said about the program. But he writes in about the subject of images, which ties very nicely to what some of the things Dr. Pipe has already said. And he asked, I've recently been convicted that images of Jesus violate the second commandment and have been phasing out the use of children's books, Bibles, and TV shows that we once used as a family. I admit some things are hard to let go of, especially when the content is otherwise very biblical. How do we respond to arguments like, quote, what is commanded really only prohibits worship of an image, unquote, or, quote, is not an image of Jesus' human form that he will willfully assumed helpful as a teaching instrument for a child, unquote. Also, how far do we go in applying this? Are all images, even that of an infant Jesus, a nativity scene, prohibited? Great question, William. In the uh, second commandment, in Exodus 20, verse 4, we need to note that there are actually two commandments. So he says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or earth beneath or the water under the earth. Now that's the manufacture. And the idol here is not simply the idol of the image of a false god, but it is any image of the true god. It's used that way. And likeness particularly is used for the images of, of the true god. Now this is not prohibiting art landscape art, even religious art, when he says, what is in heaven above, earth beneath, the water under the earth? We know, for example, that the Tabernacle and Temple had symbolic art, palm granites and, and uh, palm trees and cherubim and, and those types of things. Uh, but so it's images of the Godhead. God, when it's used, named, used by itself, is the Godhead, not the Father. And the larger Catechism 109 is very clear in pointing out that this includes images of the Son uh, incarnate and the Holy Spirit. Um, And so I think that we're not to have any images of Christ. He was God in the flesh, so he has a human nature. But he's one person. He wasn't a human person. He was the God-man. And so, at best, an image is going to show you a nature. And what use is that? Second, um, it's as the person that he did everything he did. Part of that was suffering in the, in the human nature. Part of that, given the efficacy of the divine nature. But it's always the person. And third, he gives us, the Bible gives us no description of him. Uh, he uh, never once. I mean, the exaggeration, you're not yet 50, is simply a way of, of a mm-hmm. figure of speech of saying you're young. How could Abraham have known about you? Um, and we have no biblical commandment. In fact, Paul says that uh, you know, even though we knew him according to the flesh, we know, know him thus no longer. Now, was he talking merely about a fleshly knowledge of Christ, or was he talking about the fact that he too had seen Christ in the flesh, and that's not how he related to Christ 
uh, any uh, any longer. So uh, I think that it's uh, it's improper. When people talk about the educational value, uh, it's a failure to understand a human psychology. You teach a child with using pictures of Christ. When that child prays, he's then going to have a mental image. It's almost impossible not to. And the, when the catechism forbids mental images, it's not saying you're reading about a man and you think briefly about a man, but you put no physical description on him that that is being forbidden. It's identifiable man. Uh, and that's what these images are. Now, the same with the infant Jesus. Uh, one of the problems with, with the modern observation of Christmas is full of error. And uh, right from uh, babies uh, in uh, mangers to wise men coming to the barn, uh, they came a year or two later. Um, and there being only three of them, we don't know how many there were. So we, we have all these errors around Christ as well that we need to get rid of through our, our bad worship. So um, I commend you on what you're doing. Um, you can, you know, black out the pictures if you want to keep the good Bible story book uh, or take out those uh, pages. Get rid of the videos. Also, these VeggieTale books that tell stories about Christ mm. and the Bible. I think mm. they really um, are abusing God's Word. Mm. I think we could do the um, quick one, the last one the that last, just came in. The last one? Okay. Yeah. This one um, comes anonymous again, um, which is fine, by the way. Um, uh, well, some of them need to be. Uh, yes, and some need to be, and I, I think this is probably one of them. Um, but the subject is on a, a, a congregant selling questionable, questionable media on eBay. Um. And so uh, the, the anonymous, uh, the writer says, uh, there's a member of my church who is selling a copy of R-rated movie movies on eBay with a plot that follows two men in a homosexual relationship and includes a number of inappropriate explicit scenes, from what I understand. A few people in the church are aware of it and have notified the pastor elders what course of action, if any, should or our church leadership take. What line should all of us draw when it comes to selling books, movies, artwork, and music on platforms such as eBay, Amazon, Craigslist, and the like? Okay, very good. Um, again, the catechism addresses the issue not only of not doing things, of not promoting things. I think it's very important that we realize that, or what Paul said in Romans 1. Uh, I think that the appropriate course of action is to follow Matthew 18. Uh, the person is to be gone to privately and then gone to with witnesses and if they refuse to repent uh, that they need to uh, unfortunately be uh, excommunicated. Uh, Francis Schaeffer gives a very good distinction uh, in his book on art, points out that if anything is promoting sin, um, then we don't, we don't look at it, we don't use it. It's not that you don't talk about sin. You read Augustine's Confessions or books about Augustine, he was a fornicator. Uh, you can't talk about his life. Uh, John Newton was a slave trader. And so it, at the end of the day, has the sin been promoted? Now, seeing nakedness or seeing homosexuality and leaving it uncondemned, two, two things are wrong there. Seeing any homosexual acts or any sexual acts or any nudity, I think, is forbidden by Scripture. Um, now, to... A, a, a plot that talks about homosexuality but ends up showing that it's wrong, 
but doesn't promote uh, temp- tempting. So, again, I guess there's a gray area that we have to be careful with. But, uh, yes, the person uh, needs to be confronted, and they need to uh, repent of that, in my opinion. Yes, a uh, very good question, again, and, and a sensitive one, of course, um, but um, straightforward approach, um, I think, uh, is also warranted uh, here. Well, that uh, brings us to the conclusion of uh, Faith and Practice. Uh, I think I failed to say this is the 19th edition. Um, it's amazing. We've done this 19 times. Um, lots of great questions, and, and again, uh, continue to write in uh, it, there's no limit um to how many questions you send uh, and if you've written bef- if you've written in be- uh, before write again uh we're, we're more than happy to address your questions and if you have follow-up on anything dr piper has said um then by all means um write those as also well. feel free to if you need to follow up with me privately uh, you can reach me at jpiper at gpts.edu there you go jpiper at gpts.edu. Don't forget about his website, josephpiper.com. You can contact him through his website as well. All that contact uh, information is there. He's also on Twitter. If you want to lock horns with him on Twitter, I don't think he'll do it, but uh, he'll probably just tell you to uh, write him an email. But uh, he's at at jpiperjrjr. I didn't use Twitter Twitter last night to advertise that sermon I read by Boston. I didn't see that. I wasn't paying well, attention I'll to be. Twitter. I was stuck on the road somewhere. Um, but his Twitter uh, handle is J Piper Jr. Not J Piper Jr. Jr. What I just originally just said. Um, J Piper Jr. is his Twitter handle. Mine is. Uh, everybody knows that I'm not it's William Hill Jr. W M Hill Jr. Um, but uh, and you can follow the program on Facebook, uh, Twitter. Um, the seminary has Twitter accounts, has Facebook accounts, all the stuff that everybody else has. Uh, we have. So look us up if you haven't already and friend us, like us, uh, promote us. Um, retweet us. Retweet. That, what, all those great and wonderful things. But anyway, but we do thank you uh, for writing in and uh, please continue to do so. Uh, coming up on the program, I'm going to be sitting down with Jim Holmes. He's the husband of um, Dr. Piper's administrative assistant and he's been, uh, he started a new venture um, on selling books. It's, it's uh, Cheaper by the Dozens is the website and um, where he gets good, solid Christian material into the hands of listeners at a very reduced rate. Um, it's fantastic idea. Uh, and venture that I would um, strongly encourage people to uh, take advantage of. But we're going to sit down with Jim, and we're going to talk with him about his website, his his store, and and his and, and his goals and ideas for this uh, particular um, uh, thing that he's doing now. So look for that on the next edition of uh, the Confessing Our Hope podcast. But until then, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And.